Texas Reloaded Part 2 in Georgia, where things seem a little more complicated. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. Back from vacation, a very short one for Thanksgiving. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com, and here to help me sort it all out is a man who I know missed me, Jeremy Wallace at the Houston yep. Chronicle. How are you, sir? Yeah, I did. You know, on last Thursday, I just started talking to myself. You didn't you know, even about politics. You didn't even know what to do. <laughs> Sarah, did you miss us? Yes, very much. Uh huh. That's the right answer. Thank you very much. All right, we will get to this whole fight in Georgia where the uh, Texans are coming, right? The cavalry is on the yep. way uh, in the form of Dan Crenshaw and some others. But first, we have to give COVID-19 its due. It is so cliche at this point to say it, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, we live in unprecedented times, and we have headlines like this. DFW, the, the whole Dallas-Fort Worth region basically being partially shut down once again uh, because of an uptick in the number of hospitalizations with COVID-19. Jeremy, what is the deal here? What do the numbers look like? Yeah, we're actually over 9,000 people in hospitals in Texas as of this morning. Uh, And so, you know, you got to go back to July. Mm -hmm. You remember when we were like, it was all hell breaking loose back in July. That's where we are now. Mm -hmm. We're back in those types of numbers. And so it just, you know, it was just in September. September, we were down into the 3000s and it looked like we were kind of turning some sort of corner. Uh, but clearly, you know, all hell broke loose. And we have like, you know, like you mentioned, Dallas now is part of that group. I was seeing so many hospitalizations. Yeah. They have to, you know, you know, reduce occupa- uh, occupancy in um, retail stores and restaurants. You know, that they're following El Paso. That's already done that. Laredo's had to do that. Amarillo and Lubbock have had to do that. So you kind of see this thing is just kind of spreading uh, right now where over half of the all the hospital, uh, you know, trauma service areas, you know, mm-hmm. that, you know, Texas has over half of those right now are at a point where they're considered high hospitalizations and, you know, have to start reducing occupancy and restaurants and retail. Yeah, of course, the politicians in Texas, and I don't want to be accused of false equivalency here, but there are politicians on both sides of the aisle who are trying to have it both ways. Uh, So Governor Abbott had said, and this was the screaming headline a couple of weeks ago, no more lockdowns in Texas. So how is it possible that right now, with the numbers we're seeing, you do see a rollback and more restrictions on business? This was the way Abbott explained that uh, on NBC5 in Dallas-Fort Worth. Well, remember this, and that is the executive order has an automatic ratchet back uh, once a hospital region has more than 15 percent of their hospital beds occupied by COVID patients. As we speak right now, three regions fall into that category, El Paso, Lubbock, and Amarillo. When that happens, that causes a, a further reduction of business openings, including a closing of bars. But also it leads to a reduction in non-essential surgical procedures to make sure that more beds will be available for anybody who contracts COVID. So you got that, Jeremy. He's not going to do any additional executive orders, at least not that he has announced, because the order he has in place has a trigger in it that basically says once there's, um, you know, a a few days, seven days of uh, hospitalizations over 15 percent in a region, then you do have these additional things go into place. One other politician who's sort of trying to have it both ways, and I think in this case it's a little worse, is the mayor of Austin, okay, Steve Adler. 
you saw this this week on KVU and the Austin American Statesman. Tony Plahetsky, who's a great reporter, he unearthed the fact that when Adler, our esteemed mayor, was telling people to stay home, a few weeks back because, you know, it was not a time to relax. It was not a time to take any of this stuff any less seriously. Uh, He was telling people to basically batten down the hatches because of what's going on with COVID. But it turned out he was not doing that at all. Instead, he was in Mexico. In fact, he was in Mexico telling people to stay home just on on a live update on Facebook. And he didn't say he was in Mexico. He just told people that they needed to stay home. If that sounds unbelievable, it kind of is. Here's uh, from Tony Plahetsky's report on KVU Television. But as he issued this message on the night of November 9th. And then we need to, you know, stay home if you can. He was doing it from a timeshare in Cabo San Lucas. This is not the time to, to relax. The mayor confirms he was there on vacation with eight people, including immediate and extended family, after flying on a private jet. Two days earlier, Adler hosted a wedding and reception at a South Congress hotel for his daughter with 20 family members and other guests. At the time, Austin was under stage three guidelines, which suggests no gatherings of more than 10 people. Plahetsky noted that the day after Adler's family left for Mexico, the city's top health official issued this warning. If you're going to go out to a restaurant, go out with your family, the people who live in your household, not with family and friends outside of your household. Um, you know, start to decrease those, those travels outside your home that are not necessary. So you heard him say there that people should not be, you know, gathering in big groups in restaurants. Yep. Do you think the story could get any more awkward? <laughs> yes, oh, it, no. it, it actually can. So as the story was coming out, Adler was doing a live Zoom event with the Texas Restaurants Association. And he sort of made fun of the whole situation. You know, my daughter did a wedding the first week of May, about 20 people sitting at a restaurant. I'm about to spend the next 24 hours defending that. <laughs> he said, I'm, I'm going to have to spend 24 hours defending what I did. I think it's um, safe to say the story is going to last more than 24 hours. He at first put out a statement, Adler did, uh, that uh, did not apologize for anything. And then later he did apologize for it. He did an about face on that. After his jokes didn't go over so well, Jeremy, uh, he tried to explain once again, here he is on Facebook Live. I want you to know that I regret that travel. I wouldn't travel now. I didn't over Thanksgiving, and I won't over Christmas. Uh, and and no one should. Uh, uh, everyone should be avoiding non-essential travel now, because we're in the the orange uh, area. Now, why would his travel be a problem in his estimation? Now, I fear that the travel that I did, which took place uh, during. Uh, uh, a safer period, uh, followed the car- color-coded rules, could lead uh, to some taking uh, riskier behavior now. I recognize that my travel set a bad example. Uh, I recognize that the fact that I took that trip and at the same time was continuing to urge people uh, to be cautious is confusing. 
I don't know that it's confusing, Jeremy. I'm not. <laughs> no. I'm not confused. Are you confused? No, no, not I, I'm, a lick. <laughs> I, I'm not confused. It, he just did exactly what he was telling other people to not do. Am I right? Yep. Okay. All right. So, so um, what about other people? You who you know did what he was saying they should do. I know that others have chosen not to travel uh, under the same circumstances. And I know that in my position, I need to send a clearer message. I'm sorry I took that trip. Uh, It was a lapse in judgment. And I want you to know that I apologize. Jeremy, you and I don't follow Austin uh, politics as closely as we cover state politics, but this one, this one is pretty easy. And, you know, I do live here in Austin, so do you. And I think that the difference in nuance for Austin politics this week was that a lot of times Adler, who has been um, seen by a lot of people as sort of uh, maybe subservience, not the right word, but uh, he's not really in charge at City Hall. There are a lot of folks uh, who are some Democrats who say that um, it's really the more progressive wing of the Austin City Council that's in charge of what happens there. Um, A lot of these Democrats would describe Adler as weak anyway, and a lot of them would sort of privately previously say, I I can't really defend him on this or that. This week I heard them saying out loud they could not defend him. Um, And and it's no different, really, from what happened with Gavin Newsom in California, where he was telling yeah. people to lock down and he was going to the French Laundry, you yeah. know, and having a wonderful dinner. And it was on uh, it was on uh, pictures. And then there was another state official there who did the exact same thing, I think, just a couple of days later. And there were pictures well, and- of that. And, and the common th- theme, and I saw this on CNN, which is always accused of being, you know, the liberal media or whatever. CNN, they pointed out in their report yesterday about some of these officials across the country, including Adler, the common theme is they're all Democrats. Yep. Yep. Well, and, and you saw it with Nancy Pelosi. You remember back when she went to the hairdresser? You know, that was like the big deal. You know, right. for, it, was, it was supposed to be closed, but she ended up going to a closed uh, was yeah. able to get her hair down when nobody else could. So it's that, it's that same kind of frustration where, you know, these political leaders say one thing and then they display a totally different, <laughs> you know, set of actions. Yeah, right. and, and, and while this is, you know, this seems like an Austin problem, it is going to quickly become a state problem. And it's like, you know, let's not like, you know, forget the fact that the legislature hasn't been too happy with any city in Texas, right? Especially you know, like, Austin. Especially Austin. You know, there's one city that, you know, you know, every Republican in the Texas legislature likes to pick on. It's going to be Austin. Right. And Adler has just given, you know, them even more license to do it. In fact, you know, it was just a little while ago we saw Don Buckingham, the state senator, uh, you mm-hmm. know, from the central Texas region. Yeah. You know, she's put out a statement <clears throat> saying Adler should resign. You know, and then next week, Here we the go. legislature has its first committee hearing to talk about, you know, maybe, you know, gutting, you know, cities abilities to hold a higher lobbyist. Mm-hmm. You know, they're coming and they're going to be talking it's about, come up. you know, Cabo Steve Adler, you know, and like, <laughs> you know, in this meeting. Yeah, it it, um, it leaves you with no credibility as a local official to be doing that when the one of the big tensions in Texas is how much authority should rest with the state versus local entities when it comes to disasters. When you are on the side of more restrictions, which Democrats have been, that means a couple of things. I mean, think about the fact that um, in New York and in California, when Governor Cuomo out east and Governor Newsom out west, when they first wanted to lock down their states or they ordered that, you know, there were a lot of restrictions, they kind of had the wind at their back because they are in states where there are Democratic majorities. 
yep. and Democratic majorities and Democratic voters are not pre-programmed to hate government intervention in things the way that Republican voters are, right? So when they put those things in place, they enjoyed pretty good um, uh, support for that. And the same thing is true in Austin. This is a majority Democratic city. And so if the county judge and the mayor in Austin, if they want to pursue more restrictive policies, they probably generally have the wind at their back locally on that, right? It also, But the other thing it means is you don't have any room for error. You can't yeah. be seen as the one who didn't do the thing. Uh, so to your point, I think when they do have that hearing, this is uh, you can set a stopwatch uh, before Republicans uh, will start to out loud say, one, Adler ought to resign. Two, local officials have no credibility on this issue. And, you know, if, I, if you think I'm exaggerating that it's only one city where this happened, how many other things have become state policy based on what happened in Austin and Republicans uh, engaging in backlash to that? Well, exactly. And this is going to be used against you know, Houston, mm-hmm. against San Antonio and Dallas. None of those officials you know, were in Cabo, at least as, so far as we know. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. yet they're going to they're going to deal with the, <laughs> the, the you know, the, the, the feedback on this. Right. They're going to be the yep. ones, you know, it's like when Lena Hildago or Sylvester Turner, mm-hmm. uh, you know, are before the legislature. It's like this is this added pressure on them. You know, when they go, well, how can we trust cities and counties to do the right thing when you have some mayors, you know, cutting police budgets and mm-hmm. traveling to Mexico in the middle of a pandemic? Right. Yeah. I mean, if people want examples, um, one is what you just mentioned, uh, that in Austin, it was famously uh, voted on by Austin City Council to move money from the Austin Police Department to other programs. This became the big rallying cry for Republicans on you know, defending the police versus defunding the police. You want a couple of, a couple of other examples? It was Austin that enacted strict regulations for ride-sharing companies like Uber yep. and Lyft. And those companies, remember, they stopped operating in Austin. And we got a statewide policy uh, to, as, as backlash to that on how those companies can operate in the entire state of Texas um, uh, on um, immigration. It was in Travis County that the Travis County sheriff was the only sheriff to say that she was not going to enforce ICE detainers, immigration yep. and customs enforcement, enforcement detainers. We got an entire statewide policy as backlash to that that had to do with cracking down on undocumented immigrants in texas so watch where this goes watch this space well, and, and don't forget like you know the tree ordinance stuff you know tree the ordinance, entire, right the mm-hmm. whole tree ordinance you know the the state legislature at one point was trying to you know hem in what you know cities and counties could do with tree ordinance mm-hmm. because of what was happening in travis county in austin uh and so, so you can just see it like time and time again the legislators meet here and so what they see here coming from the the city council becomes you know, basically, uh, 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 every city in Texas is doing this or could be doing this. So let's make an example out of this. Yeah, boy. All right. We will watch uh, that closely and what the backlash really is going to be. But it had a name and a face this week. Uh, you know, the, the, the stuff coming out of Austin. Steve Adler. Do you remember Texas Reloaded? Oh, Dan, yeah. Cren- Dan Crenshaw's big movie trailer political ad that he called, I think, the greatest uh, joint political ad in the history of the United States. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, will be to save Texas. Now he wants to do the same thing in Georgia, where there are two Senate runoffs in critical terms. Uh, I mean, this is just a- as stark as it could be, right, uh, for who's fully in charge in Washington. Um, You either have the Democrats are going to take the United States Senate basically uh, procedurally, right? Because if 
if the Democrats win these two, and how unusual is this to have two Senate runoffs in one state um, coming up after the general election? So we still are on the knife's edge, not knowing exactly who's going to run the show uh, in D.C. Um, You got these two Senate runoffs. If the Democrats win them both, which is possible because President Trump lost in Georgia, which is, you know, unprecedented in in modern times anyway, for a Republican to lose there uh, statewide. Um, If the Democrats win, then basically they send uh, the vice president, Kamala Harris, over there to just break every tie on controversial stuff, right? And the Democrats Democrats win, right? Uh, Win those votes. Um, If Republicans win, then they have a bulwark. They're setting up a beachhead in Washington to be able to check the new Democratic president, the president-elect, Joe Biden. Dan Crenshaw says he's doing Georgia Reloaded now because he's going to go there and campaign with other Republicans, as he explained on Fox and Friends. We have to hold the line in Georgia. Let me ask your viewers something. Do you remember all of the crazy bills passed out of the House of Representatives in the last couple of years? Do you remember taxpayer-funded political campaign ads? Do you remember job-killing minimum wage? Do you remember uh, blanket amnesty for illegal immigrants? You probably don't because Senate Republicans protected everybody from these things. They they blocked these measures. Well, that won't be the case if uh, Democrats take these seats in Georgia. So everything's on the line right now. Given the fact that President Trump lost Georgia, do Republicans maybe need to be campaigning in a different way? Look, I, I think the Republican platform is, is what people are looking for. I, I really do. People want more freedom over their lives. They don't want their schools locked down. They don't want their businesses locked down. They want more freedom. They want to do what they want to do with their money. They want an America first agenda. Uh, they want reasonable foreign policy. They want their borders secured. They want more control over their health care. Right, these are very reasonable policies. I, I think the Democrat policy agenda was largely rejected uh, at the polls. And we're going to make sure that people remember what that is. I just listed a few of the examples. And uh, we're going to be down there fighting for it. I agree with part of his analysis, Jeremy. We've talked about this a little bit, and not everybody agrees with me, and that's okay. If we always agreed, that would mean one of us is not thinking. Um, when it comes to Republican victories down ballot, I think you can read that, and it happened all across the country, including here in Texas. Um, you can read that as not a rejection of Republican governance and conservative governance, right? That yeah. that the Trump thing, and this is what I say that is a little controversial, the Trump thing and the Republican thing are different, yeah. right? Trump is a very singular figure in American politics and in the Republican Party. You saw that in Texas where it was a six-point race at the top of the ticket between him and Biden. But John Cornyn still wins very comfortably by 10 points over M.J. Hager, and that was repeated around the country. Democrats had targeted state legislatures all over the place, including here. Did they flip any state legislatures? No. No, not one, right? So, nope. So there's a difference. So in Texas, when he was doing Texas Reloaded, Crenshaw had the wind at his back, right, uh, down ballot. You know, he was able to help other candidates win their races in Texas. Now he wants to try this in Georgia, but things are different now. You saw all these people attacking Crenshaw on social media. Uh, And who are these people? Are these the QAnon people? Are these the Trump supporters? Yes. They were attacking him viciously. Uh, Michelle Malkin, who's the conservative um, commentator, what was she saying about Crenshaw? She was even making fun of his eye patch, I think. Yeah, yeah, it was crazy. It was Vicious. like, you know, 
Yeah, yeah. It was, it, like all of a sudden he was like, you know, last, you know, on Thursday night on Twitter, mm-hmm. all of a sudden it was trending nationally. You know, Dan Crenshaw, and I'm like, oh, what the heck did he do? You know, yeah. and it turned out he had, you know, somehow, you know, had you know, Michelle Malkin and that crew just going after him as kind of a phony in the Republican Party. Right. And what did he do to earn that uh, title uh, or that uh, uh, infamy? (laughs) Um, Crenshaw had said that this guy, a big Trump ally named Lynn Wood, was wrong to tell GOP voters in Georgia at a rally that they should stay home in these runoff elections. This is Georgia. We ain't dumb. We're not going to go vote on January 5th in another machine made by China. You're not going to fool Georgians again. If Kelly Loeffler wants your vote, if David Perdue wants your vote, they've got to earn it. They've got to demand publicly, repeatedly, consistently, Brian Kemp, call a special session of the Georgia legislature, and if they do not do it, if Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue do not do it, they have not earned your vote. Don't you give it to them. So Linwood there is speaking at one of these Stop the Steal rallies, uh, you know, yeah. the whole idea being that President Trump really did win the election and that it's being stolen from him. And so I think what's going on here, and grade my paper, I think it's that Dan Crenshaw is living in reality where President Trump lost the election. And you heard him say on Fox News there that what needs to happen now is Republicans need victories in Georgia to have some sort of a uh, check on President Biden when he takes the oath of office in January, right? This guy, Lynn Wood, and others who are at that rally and and other Trump supporters, they're living in this fantasy world where President Trump, that he won the election, that it's, you know, been stolen. um, And they're very upset about that. And so... If you live in a world where President Trump won the election, then there really is no emergency for Republicans in Georgia, right? They yeah, don't exactly. need they don't need to win the US Senate races there, right? <laughs> so so Wood says it's okay for people to not vote. In fact, they shouldn't vote for Republican candidates unless they go balls to the wall on this idea of uh, just, you know, upsetting everything in Georgia and challenging the Republican leadership there. This is so over the top and is leading to some very, very nasty rhetoric and some things that uh, are being reported to police now. Let me give you the example. Gabriel Sterling, you saw this guy on the news? Um, He is the voting system implementation manager at the Georgia Secretary of State's office. A short version of that is he's a top voting official in Georgia. Um, He says, and by the way, he's a lifelong conservative Republican by all accounts. This guy Sterling says, those people like Lynn Wood and his followers and others, Trump supporters, he says it's all gone too far, and he gave some specific examples. All of it. Joe DeGeneva today asked for Chris Krebs, a patriot who ran CISA, to be shot. A 20-something tech in Gwinnett County today has death threats and a noose put out saying he should be hung for treason because he was transferring a report on batches from an EMS to a county computer so he could read it. It has to stop. Mr. President, you have not condemned these actions or this language. Senators, you have not condemned this language or these actions. This has to stop. 
We need you to step up, and if you're going to take a position of leadership, show some. So this is getting very serious there. Um, I would almost feel some sympathy, empathy, might feel sorry for Dan Crenshaw, who's, you know, wanting to run into Georgia, guns blazing politically and try to round up Republican votes for these candidates. Um, He's having to work against these people who say they're Republicans, who are arguing that Republican voters should not even show up in the election. I might feel sorry for him, except he and Ted Cruz and others continue to argue, right, and you reported this at the Houston Chronicle, they continue to argue that all these accusations of election fraud need to be further investigated. What were they saying? Yeah, exactly. They're actually calling for a full investigation, make sure these results are correct. So mm-hmm. they're kind of putting that that seed out there that there's still potential, you know, that, you know, this is not the real result. So they're playing into that crowd, but at the same time, they're shocked because uh, Ted Cruz is saying almost the same exact stuff that Dan Crenshaw mm-hmm. is saying. You know, they're both getting heat back from, you know, a crew that is just totally dedicated to Trump that mm-hmm. says, you're not doing enough. You should be fighting to make sure Trump gets, you know, back to the White House. Right. And to be clear, you're saying that uh, uh, Cruz and I think Newt Gingrich was also one of these yep. who was saying the same thing that Crenshaw was saying, which is that you basically you, you folks are – under undermining uh, Republicans and, and undermining conservatism, if you're telling people to not vote for Republicans yep. in the Senate runoffs, right? They yeah, all said Ted, that. Ted Cruz was very aggressive about it, and you can see why. You know, Ted Cruz goes from being in the majority and chairing committees right. to being in the minority and watching, you know, trying to figure out strategies to stop Joe Biden from doing what he wants in the in the U.S. Senate. Yes. So you can see there's so much at stake for members of the Senate who are particularly Republican. You know, he came out and he called, uh, you know, Lynn Wood, he ended up calling him a clown and saying, don't listen to this guy. Just like, you know, it, it, almost exactly the same thing Crenshaw said. Right. The same thing Breitbart is saying, the same thing, you know, uh, Ben Shapiro uh, have been saying. So you can see there's a lot of conservative voices on one side yeah. saying something. And then there's this, whatever this Trump thing is, it doesn't feel like Republican politics anymore. It just right. feels like a Trump thing. Yes. And so they're all fighting each other. So we've talked for decades about a civil war within the Republican Party. No, no, no. This, what we're seeing in Georgia is absolutely the culmination of this party that is trying to figure out how do we coexist, you know, in an era of Trump with other Republicans. Yeah. And you have to wonder why Crenshaw is being singled out for all the attacks by Michelle Malkin and these other folks who are very, you know, the QAnon followers, the people who are very angry about what he said, even though it was echoed by those others and maybe even said first by those other people. I would say um, just, you know, just spitballing here uh, that people like Ted Cruz, Newt Gingrich, Breitbart and others have done a lot more work than Crenshaw to try to cultivate good relationships with that crowd um good point perhaps um but that doesn't make them any less hypocritical for only going after him we will see how his efforts turn out Uh, with all this anger and people that you know basically one of the things that they were saying about crenshaw is they were making fun of his eye patch as i mentioned isn't that crazy don't you remember it wasn't that long ago pete davidson on snl had to apologize for having done that right i don't think Malkin and that crew that they're going to apologize for it. Well, and, and let's remind, you know, listen to this, you know, Dan Crenshaw lost that eye and nearly died while in Afghanistan right. as a and Navy SEAL, people, you know, it's like, you know, fighting for the country. And so right. Once people see the rest of the story, because even after he won and people started seeing the patch, I'd get, you know, you know, 
emails and text messages from people saying, hey, what's with this guy with the eye patch? Mm-hmm. And then you go, dude, <laughs> you, you know, read the story. It's like the, the man lost an eye defending right. our country and nearly lost his vision completely. Right. You know, it's just like, it's, so it's a weird thing to kind of go pick at somebody's, you know, disability or wound, you know, as part of your argument in any situation. Yeah, right? it's it's gross. I, ha- I would have to assume then that the people who are making these charges of fraud uh, in the election, and they're so mad at guys like Crenshaw and, and whoever else, that they must be upset about something that is very serious, real allegations of fraud, right? That, that would be what you would you would think, right? So yeah. it's worth listening to some of what the arguments are from the Trump campaign. What are they actually arguing in front of official uh, legislative bodies and courts? We've talked a little bit about what they said in the courts uh, on previous podcasts. Um, did you see where the Trump campaign had a star witness in front of the Michigan House of Representatives? Oh, yeah, it was much must-watch TV. It was almost like Law & Order, you know, special unit. <laughs> yes, let's listen to part of what the testimony was from their star witness who is alleging voter fraud in Michigan. This election, I will say, it they took these Democrats took every avenue possible to commit fraud in this election. That's Melissa Carone, a contract worker who claimed in Michigan that she saw election fraud. That fraud included a suggestion that ballots were being smuggled inside food trucks. Let that sink in here she is talk here here she is talking with uh trump's lawyer uh america's mayor rudy giuliani in front of a committee of the michigan house of representatives investigating possible fraud how many ballots would you estimate in front of you that you observed were counted multiple times in the machine can you put a number to it an estimated number at least at least thirty thousand at least 30,000. Okay. So that sounds pretty serious. Yeah. Um, it, now, I will say here that the uh, official accounts of this all ended up calling Ms. Carone not credible, and it seemed the lawmakers did not uh, take her uh, very seriously, uh, but they did try to take her seriously at first. And I think, and if you go and read all the coverage about this, you can see what she was alleging. She says that dead people were voting and uh, people who were undocumented immigrants were voting and all of that. She says it. That doesn't mean that it happened, and that's not concrete evidence of anything. Um, But to this whole point of Dan Crenshaw having to fight with Republicans who think that President Trump really won, right? That's what he's having to do right now. Listen to how combative uh, this woman is with a Republican lawmaker on the committee, and as I listen to this, it sounds like, Jeremy, he's trying to help her make yeah. her point. He's, he's trying to say, okay, what is it exactly that you're alleging here? And she just fights with him. That poll book? Why don't you look at the registered voters on there? How many registered voters are on there? Did you, do you even know the answer to that? No, I guess it's, I'm trying to get to the bottom zero. of this here. Zero. There's zero. So my question then... Is if the guess how many? Wait, what about what about how what what about about the turnout rate? A hundred and twenty percent. Let's uh, let's let Representative Johnson ask his classic question. So, <laughs> so the poll book number. Okay, there, there's two things that could happen here. Either the poll book number, if, if ballots were caught multiple multiple times, there, there's two options. Option number one is that the poll book numbers are not going to match. They the, don't the actual. 
not by thousands and thousands of votes. That's not what we see right now. You that, take a look again. One. Take a look again. Option number two is that they essentially were, were filling in names of people who didn't vote. That, Dead that, people, too? So is that, Let's I guess, let is that Representative your Johnson ask his question, and then when I he's done. I thought that was his answer. Okay. Well, I guess uh, that, that's well, my, my question here is why we're not seeing the poll book off by 30,000 votes. That, that's not the what case. What did you guys do, take it and uh, do something crazy to it? I'm just saying the numbers are not off by 30,000 votes. Something crazy to it, which is, you know, <laughs> a, uh, that's a very good argument. That's, that's a technical term, right? A legal term, right? It's, you have to it, go to law school to get that. Yeah, it's what what happens with legal documents uh, all the time. You get the idea. This, uh, uh, this fight is not uh, between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, Democrats are moving yeah. on. Democrats are building a government now. I see one story after another about Joe Biden is, you know, starting to, you know, name members of his cabinet. He's starting to fill different posts within the administration that's coming up. Even under the surface in the Trump administration, they have started to start the process of handing over the keys to the next people who are going to be there. And even President Trump, I'll say this, has been talking about running again in 2024, right? Which means what? That he knows he's not president come January, Right, that that's all over with, uh, but these people want to continue to have this fight. Speaking of the next presidential fight, the next presidential nominating contest, once again, Governor Abbott is in the mix. Yep. This this comes up now and then, and you had reported he got a very special invitation. What was that about? Yeah, and the folks at Politico uh, had uncovered that uh, the the Republican National Committee's inviting a select group of people who they think could be 2024 candidates to mm-hmm. Florida for their winter meetings uh, to kind of try to show that although the RNC has been an arm of the Trump campaign, they're going to be independent, even if Trump says he's going to try to run again. And so the fact that, you know, so the the real point here is that, you know, Greg Abbott's been invited to this thing that includes mm-hmm. people like Nikki Haley, Ted Cruz, Tom Cotton, uh, these are all people who are going to be, you know, trying to figure out if they can run for president. And like, if you remember, it was this on the Mark Davis show about a month ago that, you know, Abbott was asked if he was, you know, you know, could he run for governor or for president in 2024? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he said, well, one step at a time, you know, and right. never said no, never said yes. But he certainly, you know, said I'm focused right now on winning reelection. Then we'll see what happens. Yeah. You know, and- but, so you can see he's in the conversation from a national standpoint, and there's another good reason why he's in that conversation. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people in Texas don't remember this, but he's been the, the chairman of the Republican Governors Association. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that group just won, you know, with him at the leadership, won seven races, uh, including flipping, you know, a seat uh, that, you know, in Montana that had been held by Democrats. And they have, they raised a lot of good money. Mm-hmm. Uh, they used, you know, they were able to beat back in a couple of races like in New Hampshire and Vermont where Democrats thought they could pick up seats. Mm-hmm. Uh, they beat them back. And that's all going to go on Abbott's ledger. You know, so he's going to have, you know, had influence in a lot of key races. Uh, and he's already, you know, clearly now has a relationship in New Hampshire. Yeah. Very key yeah. state and presidential races. Right. Yeah. And so don't be surprised to see that conversation around Abbott continue. We knew Ted Cruz was going to be, you know, in whatever race comes, you know, next in the presidential race. Mm-hmm. But Greg Abbott is a name that I think we should probably listen to and pay attention to. I think he's going to get a lot more attention as we move forward. 
All right, and of course, um, we need to watch his performance during the next legislative session because what these governors will do, and Governor Abbott did this, Governor Bush did this, um, you know, Governor Perry did this, as they were potentially all preparing for different uh, higher offices. The only higher office from Texas governor is president. You know how in some in some states it's U.S. Senate, in Texas yep. it's the other way around. Right. Yeah. Um, so so you watch what kind of things they put on the agenda. And in this next legislative session, and I want to talk about this more on the show next week, there are going to be uh, a lot of issues that could be thorny. It's going to be um, kind of a triage legislative session as they try to get through with a very tight budget uh, and the COVID-19 response and all of that. I would think that the governor uh, would try to just have sort of an even keel legislative session uh, so that he's not doing himself any damage moving forward, um, you know, and, and won't take too much heat from his right flank while also being able to try to appeal to a broader audience as well. But we'll get into it next week. If you enjoy the show, and you know you do, you listened all the way to the end, you should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you listen to your favorite podcast. Check out Jeremy's work at HoustonChronicle.com, and we would love to have you as a subscriber at QuorumReport.com. Just click uh, subscriptions at the top of the homepage. We'll see you next week.